Today we have a, a special day that we are going to be just recognizing someone um, as an assistant pastor who maybe many of you probably are surprised because you've thought that, well, he's been an assistant pastor for a very long time, uh, but uh, uh, that's because um, he has a pastor's heart and the way he serves, people just see him as a pastor. So. That's the, at Calvary Chapel, uh, the way that someone is made a pastor, it's really done by the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit confirms in the heart of the flock that someone is a pastor. Then you ordain them, and not the other way around. That's just how we do things um, at, uh, in, the, in this movement, the Calvary Chapel movement. And that's uh, th where I'm speaking now about Eric, um, Eric Burks. I'm trying to figure out. I'm going as I, I, I I'm making up what we're going to do, Eric, as we go along. Why don't you first come up here? Uh, why don't I, I, can you put a seat there for Eric? Geo, a seat right there. So why don't you why don't you come here? So I want to just read something. Uh, when were when did when did Pastor Scott leave? About seven years ago. They texted me. Scott, when did you leave? Uh, we, we ordained Eric as a chaplain. Oh, there you go. Very good. Okay. We ordained Eric as a chaplain 10 years ago. That was a few years before Scott uh, moved to Texas. And... Uh, that was to support his ministry in the prison ministry. He's been going in for 14 years into youth prison and uh, following up with um, uh, the guys after they get out and then following up with them when they go back in. And so it's a very hard ministry. It's, um, I've learned so much um, about perseverance and just from Eric over the years. But So 10 years ago, um, he needed to be... Uh, you know, if you talk to, to prisoners, they tell you stuff that's private, and in order to protect it, we needed to ordain him. We ordained him as a chaplain. And, you know, some people, they're, they have a certain ministry, and, uh, for example, a chaplain, and they'll be a chaplain for the rest of their lives. Many of you know Jack Kranz. He was, he's just phenomenal. He um, was ordained as a chaplain 50 years ago. He's still a chaplain, and God's using him tremendously. But one thing that um, we began to observe about uh, Eric was that he uh, clearly was, after he was ordained chaplain, I, we, we, he clearly developed a vision for the people of the church, a broader pastoral shepherding vision for the church. And so... Uh, earlier in the year, the elders uh, just ordained him. In a, not, a, not a secret meeting. We weren't trying to keep it secret, but it was not, not everyone was there. But uh, we wanted to do something in, uh, with you all to just uh, publicly recognize um, what's going on. And so I have some care, a carefully worded statement. This is a statement like I'm thinking, uh, thought very carefully about every word, but they're important words. And I just want to read it uh, to you. And that is, Calvary Chapel's philosophy is to proceed with 
ordaining the calling on a man's life when the calling is affirmed by the Holy Spirit through the affirmation of God's flock. That would be you all. That has happened with Eric as it relates to an ordination as, as, a, uh, as an assistant pastor. This, the Calvary Chapel in the city flock look to him as a pastor and have for some time. For example, they, including the leadership, including me, uh, look to and rely upon Eric to authoritatively resolve small and great shepherding issues. Whether it's dealing with a sin issue, a wolf endangering the flock, man, you better be careful if you're a wolf in here, Eric's going to get you, woo, or the need for counsel in a crisis, Eric is a big time go-to guy at Calvary Chapel in the city. He has other marks of a pastor. He pursues sheep for discipleship and perseveres in discipling relationships. So important. So important. I'm just going to, so important, I'm going to read it again. Eric pursues sheep for discipleship and per perseveres in discipling relationships. Also important to me is that Eric has bought into the Calvary Chapel and Calvary Chapel in the City philosophy on certain things such as, one, a strong, unwavering emphasis on grace, both in teaching and in ministry, without compromising on the importance and urgency of a call to repentance, both in public and in private ministry. Again, all carefully chosen words there. But number two, he, there's also in his life a strong emphasis on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And finally, Eric truly fears the Lord. And so uh, it is just a privilege just to publicly recognize um, Eric as an assistant pastor. Now, I have you sitting up here. Um, and I want you to remain sitting up here for your next introduction, which is by Dean. This is going to be hard, Eric, with you sitting up here with Dean. But Dean, get up here. Where are you, Dean? Get up here. Maybe you're, why don't you just move like a little farther away. So Dean was a, a part of the ministry um, of Eric and... Uh, He's going to get it done now. Okay, okay. Okay. Um, also, I have my Boston hat on. Okay, kiss the mic. Um, so... I guess I'll start off by saying um, I met Eric in 2010, the end of 2010. Um, I was 18. I had just turned 18. Um, I was living with, she wasn't my wife then. She was my girlfriend, Saina. She's my wife now. Um, we were living in Worcester. 
and we had a lot going on, to say the least. I, won't, I don't want to get into all of that, but definitely had a lot going on. Um, she was pregnant at the time with my first son, Dean, um, and we, we had a tough life. Um, and it's been tough since, but it's been better with God. Um, so I was introduced to Eric through a woman named Gail. Gail was a woman that does exactly what he does, but she does it in Worcester. She goes to um, juvenile facilities and, and talks with the kids there. Um, I went into one of those meetings, not to be a Christian, but just because I was in trouble at the program and I got to have cookies and ice cream and stuff when I went there. Um, so that's kind of literally how I became a Christian was cookies and ice cream. So um, I got out. Uh, I continued to go to church with Gail. Um, and uh, me and my wife-to-be at the time moved into an apartment. Long story short, I was on probation for a, for a firearm, and uh, I was kind of stuck where I was at because when you're on probation, you're on probation out of a certain city. Um, so I was looking to get out of Worcester because it was kind of like um, a... I would call it like a, a black hole. I don't know if you've ever grown up somewhere and you get connected to the people and to, to the streets so much that in order for you to elevate, you have to get away from there. Where you, you have to go somewhere where you don't know people, where you don't know how to get in trouble as easily. I'll say it like that. Um, so my wife was with um, another woman, and that woman had left. Um, just, just got up one day and was like, listen, my husband's in the army. He has a place for us to be. And so I'm moving. And she left her alone, and she couldn't pay the rent, obviously, by herself. I was 18. She was 19. Um, so I kind of just started to panic because I had nowhere to go. And um, she, my wife was going to move back with her mother. And... <laughs> You know, suffice to say, she didn't want me in there. Um, so I talked to Gail one day, and I was like, listen, Gail, um, I don't have anywhere to go. I need to figure out, like, what's going to be my next move. And she was like, okay, give me some time. I'll see what I can do. Two days later, she calls me, and she's like, hey, I got this guy out in Boston. Name's Eric. He does the same type of work that I do just in the Boston facilities. Do you want to meet with him? I'm like, all right, cool. You know, in my head, I'm like, yes, you know, I'm about to go over there and take over. Um, that was my mentality at 18. You know, I was like, yeah, you know what I mean? When you're 18, you're very uh, conniving. You're, you're, the wheels are turning, right? I was not a Christian at the time. I wanted to be a Christian. I knew about God, but I was just way too entrenched in the streets to even begin um, that journey by myself. Um, so, like, a day later, Eric came, and when I saw him, I'm telling you, I was like, Bingo. Got it. Uh, he pulled up, smiling like he is now. He looked a lot younger. He had the glasses on. And uh, he's like, hey, you want to go for some ice cream? I'm like, absolutely. Let's go. <laughs> so we talked for about an hour or two. And um, from the beginning, God had a plan, right, that he was going to do something in my life. And it happened to be through Eric. Um, and I've always stayed close to Eric throughout the years because I know that he's not biologically my father, but he's been my spiritual father for 14 years. So he made me sign a contract 
uh, a Christian contract. And um, it had a lot of rules on it, I ain't gonna lie. And it was like, you know, I'm gonna meet with him every night. And I was, in my head, I'm like, there's no way. But I signed it anyways, you know, I don't have nowhere to go. I'm, I need somewhere to go. So I signed it and I'm like, yeah, absolutely. We're gonna meet, this is gonna be great. <laughs> so anyways, um, that was like in like December, um, January of the next year, I moved in with him. Very cold in Boston. Didn't know anybody. It was a very different scene in this church. Um, right now, there's like a sea of multiple different kinds of races and faces. I've, I felt like the black sheep, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Literally. So um, I started, you know, getting to know people around here. And at the same time, Eric was, you know, meeting with me and stuff like that. And there was nights where he would literally have to grab my ankle and pulled me out of the bed because I was fake sleep. I'm 19 doing this, by the way. Fake sleep, he would grab me out, and then what was it, the Greg Laurie book? We started the Greg Laurie book. Now, at the time, like I'm saying, like I, I, I felt like I wasn't taking things serious, right? But God was dropping seeds, or Eric was dropping seeds, right? Um, fast forward to now, obviously, everything that I learned from Eric is now presently is what I use in my Christian walk. Um, I wrote a bunch of things down here. I know I didn't even read any of it. Um, the first thing I want to talk about, Eric, is, as a Christian, his consistency. Um, the biggest example I like to use is the Raisin Bran Crunch. This dude ate Raisin Bran Crunch for 11 years straight every morning. <laughs> Nuts. No other cereal. He wouldn't do anything else. I would come down and he'd have his Raisin Bran Crunch in a little coffee cup and be smiling in the dark. And I was just like, I, oh, I, just, I couldn't stand him some days when I came down them stairs. You're 19, you're stressed out. I started, you know, I worked with Mike McMillan, for those of you that know. So there was days I would, didn't even want to get up. Um, and I would come down and I'm just thinking about, I'm going to see this dude, Mike. And here Eric is, sitting in the chair, eating Raisin Bran Crunch, smiling. And I was just so furious at that. Like, why are you so happy all the time? <laughs> in retrospect, I look back, and he had God's peace from the very beginning. I didn't even see it like that, but from the beginning, he had God's peace in his life, um, which is a very real thing because in my life presently, I work for Amazon, um, and I manage 130 associates a night. And they're all different types of people from all walks of life. Um, black, white, sober, not sober. Um, boy, girl, boy, girl. Um, so everything that you can imagine under the sun is at Amazon. And um, I need God's peace every day that I go in there. Um, he can attest to this, Josh. I, call, I talk to him a lot about it. And I know I talk to Eric about it a lot. I know you guys couldn't imagine that I would be doing something like this when I was 19. Because, um, you know, days would have ended very differently had I got this job at 19. Um, everything that I went through with Eric, from working with Mike McMillan to getting kicked out to coming back, um, led me to the point that I am currently in. My walk with Jesus has been very, in the beginning, inconsistent. Um, a trait that I should have took from him from the beginning that I didn't, something I took for granted. The consistency of coming downstairs every day and seeing him sitting in that seat. I had never known that 
so I know I have a lot of people in my life, cousins, friends, that when they would walk downstairs, they would see their mom pass out on the couch or drunk or with a different man every day, or maybe their parents weren't there at all. Maybe it was their grandparents. So it was just even more than, it was more than just seeing he had peace. It was like, I love this dude. I'm coming downstairs every day and seeing him and he's here for me every day, no matter what I did. Um, and a lot of people don't have that, right? And I was lucky to have that. God gave me a piece of that while I was still young so he can say, listen, I know a lot of the years earlier on were messed up, but I'm showing you now, this is what you need to be for your children, for your wife, um, for your household. Um, and all along from the beginning, even before I met Eric, I had Jesus. I never knew that. Um, my walk with Jesus has been hard. I've almost lost my wife. I haven't been the best father. I haven't been the best worker. I haven't been the best anything. Um, but he's been the best the whole time. Um, Eric is a good guy. And more than that, he's a consistent spiritual leader um, for those that need it. I know there's a lot of people that went in and out of his house that didn't make the cut, that, that argued with him, that maybe not have learned. Some have died. Some, some are on drugs. Um, but I hope when he looks at me, he sees that um, out of 100, even if there was one, because God will leave the 99 and get the one. He did that for me. So I appreciate everything you've done for me. Your turn, bro. This is Vandell. Give Vandell a hand. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. So I knew Eric for about 10 years now. I met him about 2013. Met him about 2013. Ever since then, he's been very consistent and very persistent with me. Um, he's led me down the right path, I'm not going to lie. He's been, had a very helpful hand in my life. If it wasn't for him, my life could have ended up in a, could have been a very worse situation than it is now. So, I'd like to thank him. Um, Erica is a, like Dean said, he has a very good heart, uh, does God's work. Um, it, uh, Luke 9.23 says, and he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take his cross daily and follow me. Eric has invited people in his homes. He's ministered to people in prisons, from juvenile to state prison to county jails. Um, and he really does God's work. He, he doesn't let up. He doesn't get fed up. He's only human, but yet he continues on through all that and just keeps on going. Um, I met Eric through a good friend of mine named Raphael, some of you guys know. Ever since then, I always have met with him. He's always been there, always guided me, played a father figure, the male figure that a lot of men need, a lot of men don't have, or young boys don't have in my neighborhood. Um, another verse is 1 Timothy um, chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. 
this is the part where Eric, uh, he played a, uh, a good leader role and father figure role in a lot of young men's lives, a lot of juvenile delinquents, a lot of you know, people that's involved in criminal acts. So he, he led a lot of people to the light. He tried to help some, some got lost along the way, but what, is, what matters is he helped some. Um, another verse is Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So he always put others before him. For a man who goes to work and then after work, goes to meet with kids at a, at a prison, and then from the prison he'll invite some of them to his home, that's a, that's a sacrifice. I know a lot of us, I know my mom, me, myself, would never invite anybody I don't know into my own house. So to do that is a true heart after God. So that is a, that's a big thing about him. Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I can say he's, very, he's been more than patient as long as I've known him. I'm pretty sure um, a lot of the kids like me was, was not the best. Probably took a while for him to catch on, but he's very persistent, like I said. He, does, he never quits. He, even if it seems that it's annoying and you're annoying him, he still continues on. He'll still go out his way to come see you, and, and he just plays a very important role in a lot of people's lives. He's just a great person, like I said, he has a heart after God. Um, so whatever he's done in his life has changed, has played a big hand in my life. I'm very close to God now. Uh, God has played a, a very important role in my life. He's blessed me in many ways that some won't even believe. Um, financially, physically, mentally, health-wise. So, Eric never um, came into my life. Who knows where I'll be? So I thank God for him every day, and that um, I pray that God does good things for me. He does not cease from the faith, and he continues doing his work. Um, my message is brief, but I'm not a person. I, I just like get to the point, so I ain't really got much more to say. <laughs> so, I mean, but you guys know Eric, so his character speaks for itself, and I'd like God to walk with him and then just lead him on the right path. Eric, you didn't tell me this guy taught the Word of God. I mean, that was very impressive in public. Wow. Michin, can you come up here? And Dean and Saina, can you come up here? Yeah, you're going to do it, woman. You can come up here. Come on. Um. <laughs> so I'm going to get it. Who, who, who's got someone? We need a, we, this is a photo op. So without me, I'm getting out. Uh, Josh, can you, uh, can you do a photo here? I just want to say something, uh, there's the camera, that in the inner city, among many other things, the issue is broken families. And we, we were in Galatians chapter 3 where it talks about, uh, in broken families, by the way, that's a curse that goes way back and it goes from one generation to another, but Jesus Christ, Galatians chapter 3, breaks the curse. And this is what happens. Um, this is what happens when Jesus Christ comes into, comes to, in, into the lives of, of men and women. They, um, uh, instead of running away from each other, they run to each other. They, they get married, the covenant of marriage, and they raise children in the fear of the Lord. No one's perfect. They're not. We're not. Steffi and I are not. But um, um, this is just a testament uh, to the ministry of of Eric, so I'm going to get out of the way. And uh, Josh, can you can you take a picture? 
Um, before handing uh, the mic over, or Eric has his own mic, but uh, I do want to say another thing, Eric. I, I, uh, I, I've appreciated your ministry so much. You've been such a, a help to me, but um, uh, I thought it was important for me to say this, that you know, after Scott left six years ago, Pastor Scott, who's now in Texas, um, there was that incident where um, instead of choosing faith, I chose sin. In my words to you, they were ugly, they were unloving, they were hurtful. And you forgave me and gave me a chance to rebuild trust and friendship, which was... which. Um, I really appreciate about you, but as much or more importantly than that, that's the mark of a man who makes it safe for people to be under as a pastor. That's the environment. That's the that's a, a pastor's heart. It, a pastor needs sheep need need a pastor um, that that, that uh, makes a safe environment, and that's you. You you create a safe environment. You created a safe environment for all um, these uh, for, for these young men and many others, and uh, uh, so important as a pastor, and so and, and so rare too um, in, in the world. And and you have it, and so thank you. And so now, Eric is going to present uh, the Word of God to us. And uh, give him a give him a hand. Well, thank you, everyone. That's very very kind. Um, <laughs> forgiving you, you've forgiven a whole lot more of my sins over the years, for sure. So love covers a multitude of sins. Well, what a what a privilege to be. Sharing the word of God with you, all those kind things that were spoken. And today we're going to learn a little bit more about serving the Lord. If you'd stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 21. might feel like a very strange passage to be in. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers are bringing them. <clears throat> Potentially confusing passage, but I think it's a critical passage when we think about something like ordination or what it means to serve Jesus. Exodus chapter 21, we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Now these are the judgments which you will set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master will take and bring him before the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorposts with 
his master, and shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So let's pray. Father, we just pray over your word. Not a single one of us have anything to boast about except what your word has brought about in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I just pray over this word. I, I know this word has been twisted throughout the ages to inflict such harm and pain, but I pray, Father, that you would redeem it by the Holy Spirit. Teach us today what it means to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> So let me begin by saying that this passage is a difficult passage to talk about, and particularly in light of our nation's history, as well as the history of the Caribbean nations, under the history of European control during the slave trade. Much of the diversity in this room today is the direct result of the slave trade, that took place from the 16th to the 19th centuries. And no doubt a passage like this is felt and experienced in many different ways, depending on your background and your heritage. But I'm not choosing this passage to cause any upset, but it might might be redeemed to its original intent. 2 Timothy chapter three, verse 16 through 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Slavery was not an institution which was started by the Bible. Slavery has its origins going all the way back to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. As part of their sin, there was a curse. Does anybody remember the curse of Adam? Dean. Yes, I think we have that verse. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Slavery is essentially another person refusing to bear their part in the curse and instead enforcing the slave to feed them off the sweat of the slave's brow. So when was slavery resolved? On the cross, but that was 2,000 years ago. Didn't we have slavery in this country? The Emancipation Proclamation, is is that when, that's a good answer. Is that when slavery stopped? No. How many people went out and saw the movie Sound of Freedom? Fantastic movie, hard movie to watch, but fantastic movie that documents child sex slavery. And in the trailer of the movie, they present some statistics of modern day. 27.6 million in labor and sex trafficking. 5.1 million in modern day slavery in the United States alone. Slavery still exists today. It's just in the shadows. It's hidden. It's not exposed. So when does slavery come to an end? Well, the answer is, in the Bible, it's at the return of Christ. 
Revelation chapter 18 describes the end where the world's sinful system who's trying to escape the curse of sin, living luxuriously on the back of slaves, she's epitomized as a woman called Babylon. Revelation chapter 18, verse 8. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen and am not a widow, I will never mourn. Rather than confessing her sin and mourning the curse she deserves, she refuses it. A few verses down, starting in verse 11. At her judgment, the merchants will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. And then there's a very long list of those cargoes, cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, and the last on the list, and human beings sold as slaves. This is the last reference in the Bible of slavery before the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. So now we've seen the beginning of slavery and we will see the end of slavery. And now we understand its cause. The Bible didn't create slavery. It was the sinful human beings that created slavery. But the Bible does speak to us in regarding how to live in an intervening time period where God's will on earth is not yet fulfilled as it is in heaven. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Remember the prayer? Thy, the Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will will ultimately be done on earth, but as yet, all that happens on earth is not pleasing in his sight. Slavery is one of those things. So the Bible speaks on and regulates many practices that are a direct result of sin. Let's take, for example, divorce. Talk about divorce briefly in this context. I'm going to read to you the book of Mark, chapter 10. Starting in verse 2. Then the Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he, Jesus, answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. But from the very beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So here, Jesus makes it very clear. Divorce is not of God. God did not create divorce. It was never his will from the beginning. And yet, because of the hardness of their hearts, God gives instructions in the Bible that regulates and restrains a practice of divorce. See, it's possible for God to teach through the word about conditions of divorce which make it allowable or permissible 
without necessarily implying that God condones, sanctions, or is ever pleased by divorce. The Bible says God hates divorce, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. But yet there are verses that can guide situations where divorce uh, is possible. Similarly, the overall theme of the Bible regarding slavery, including the dominant theme in the book of Exodus, which we're reading from, is God liberating and freeing people from slavery. Back in our passage, we're in Exodus chapter 21, back up one chapter, Exodus 20. What does God say to the Israelites? I think we have that on the projection. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage that can also be translated out of slavery. This very book that we're talking about slavery, God is declaring the overarching theme is a liberation from slavery. So while not condoning, sanctioning, or approving of slavery, there are laws which regulated or restrained slavery under the Old Covenant. For example, in the very same chapter that we're reading from, Exodus 21, verse 16, says, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. So as you can see from that verse, slavery as practiced during the colonial period was actually strictly forbidden. We're not allowed to just capture and kidnap people and make them slaves. In fact, people who did such things were to be put to death in Israel. And there are many other restraints that the Bible had on the practice of slavery under the Old Covenant that we don't have time to go in today. The next question is, what are the circumstances in which slavery was allowable or permissible in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel? Well, generally, it was the result of a person becoming destitute, and unable to manage their life independently. At this time in human history, there was no welfare, there was no public housing, no shelters, no Section 8, no mass health, or any other government-sponsored program that could help somebody who fell into hard times. If you couldn't pay your debts, then selling yourself as a slave offered you a chance to get out of debt have a roof over your head, and food to eat, which was comparably better than starving to death on the streets. Were there abuses in Israel? Of course there were. When you give one sinful man power over another man, there will always be abuses somewhere along the way. But considering the alternative of letting people starve in the streets, it was a practice that was permitted for a season and it served its purpose. If it worked well under this practice, the enslaved person might learn from, um, from his master over his years serving and be able to maintain their independence. Notice that in Exodus, it's a defined period of time which was not to exceed six years. Now, while not even close to the same thing, Dean described our contract, where I would bring young men who were in a place where their lives were unmanageable because they kept going in and out of prison, and I would take responsibility to 
give them a place to live and to feed them, but they had to follow my rules. I required them to work and or go to school. They had to have a savings account of which I had authority over, and sometimes I think I made Dean pay me at least half his income, 80% of his income at one point in time, to sit in that savings account so that when the day of independence came, there was money for an apartment or a car or whatever it was. He had to go to church. He had to be open to spiritual conversation and prayer. You couldn't smoke weed or drink alcohol in my house. If they had a girlfriend, they were not allowed up in their rooms. They could be over at the house only when I was there. I had all kinds of rules. But it was understood in this agreement that this was not going to be something that would last forever. Once they learned the lessons of independence so that they could form their own order and discipline in their lives, then they would go out on, the, on their own. Did it work? Well, two of them left early because they didn't like the rules, and sadly they were later murdered. One of them went back in and out of prison multiple times, but three of them su uh, succeeded in gaining and maintaining their independence. Dean was one of them. The other two um, don't consistently walk with the Lord, but they do have good long-term jobs, rent their own places and live independently, and comparable to those in their family, they're actually regarded as amazing success stories. Now, there were three commonalities in all of them that allowed, I believe, for their success. All of them, all three of them that succeeded, left my house after a period of a few months fed up with my rules and then went back out and found themselves unmanageable again and then later came back and said, I don't like your rules, but I know that I need this. From that place of humility, all three were able to gain their independence. Of course, the majority of youth, of youth I've worked with haven't been in my house. I've been ministering in DYS for uh, 14 years and have worked, I've lost count, but it's well over 500 incarcerated youth. I've probably mentored another 50 or so in the community for different periods of time. For nearly all of them, the desire to learn about Christ was motivated by the hope that God would help them change their lives. They could get out of jail and stay out of jail if they could just learn something about God. And we in the church are really no different than them. We come to God wanting to fix our marriage, wanting us to, him to help us with an addiction or get a better paying job or maybe escape the danger of a home country that we're not thriving in. And it's not wrong that we initially seek God for help. Psalm 50 and verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. God delights in delivering us. And yet from this passage in Exodus 21, we learn that there is a servant who comes to seek something else beyond help out of the hope of independence. Let's read those verses again. Exodus chapter 21 Verses 5 through 6. 
But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall take him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and she, he shall serve him forever. This servant is different from all the others. The others are submitting in hope of one day gaining an independence. The servant wants to stay. His master's love for him and the family of fellow slaves that he now calls his own family has won over any desire for independence. He's a bond slave, marked with a big gaping hole in his earlobe where an awl, a big metal stake, was driven through it into a wooden doorpost of his master's house, declaring for all to see that he will never again be free. Many of you know, very privileged after serving God many years, throughout those time periods, praying, looking, if God had marriage for me, and several of those relationships that I tried to seek the Lord on fell apart. And for many reasons, it was difficult to explain, but there was just a sense with that particular person that there wasn't a peace. And so I just told the Lord, I said, God, you're just going to, if I'm going to get married, it's got to be, you know, like Isaac, who's just meditating in the field and Rebecca shows up on a camel. So during COVID-19, I was sitting in my usual spot, and then, of course, they were assigning seats. And this woman, who I didn't even know her name, kept being sat right next to me. Now, worship is super important for me. Like, that's the place that God just ministers to my heart. And so a lot of times, my eyes are closed. And I open my eyes, and there's this woman next to me. I didn't really know that much about what she looked like. She had a mask on all the time. But then I began to ask the Lord... Is it possible? Are you really, like, answering this prayer of mine? So I didn't know anything about her. I happened to know a couple of her friends and got a little bit of inside information and gathered up the courage to ask her out. Now, my wife is an amazing person. She, uh, how many of you remember where you were in 9-11, if you were even born then? I remember sitting and watching 9-11 on the TV, apart from Christ, living in sin, watching those towers come down. My wife was 21 years old at the bottom of those towers, ministering to people, praying to people. She was full-time staff with an organization called Youth with a Mission. She served the Lord her whole life. Me, like I was just in sin back then. Missions trips, I've led many missions trips to different places, Haiti, Peru, Go down the list. My wife was a missionary for five years in Mexico. She's led teenagers and all kinds of people missions. Like she, she can't even count how many missions trips she's done. Leaderships, positions, and titles. She holds very high levels in her organization. She's ministered in every place she was at in different Calvary chapels. She led youth group and a Calvary in uh, Long Island. She grew up as a teenager, Connecticut. Joe, uh, Joe Paskowitz's church. And when I married Emily, Pastor Scott Richardson says to me, congratulations, 
you had the humility to marry a woman with a much bigger and much more successful ministry than your own. And he was right, I married up. But that's not what got my attention when Emily and I first started talking. Our very first date, there was a snowstorm. I wanted to come, she's like, nope, the governor said it's a national emergency, you can't come. So we had a three-hour conversation by Zoom, and she just, in all transparency, opens up to me and tells me about a very difficult thing that she went through in her life while serving the Lord faithfully. And she didn't know why God allowed this thing to happen, but it was a big deal. And just as she went through it, and the difficulty that she went through, and knowing her as a worship, it was as if, spiritually, she pulled back her hair and showed me the gaping ear in her earlobe. I knew she was a bond slave of Jesus. I just had peace. And it's always been there since. Just in a few dates, you know, we became friends, but I told Josh Davis, we prayed together uh, weekly, I said, this just feels like bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Good to be paired with a bond slave who doesn't, no matter what happens, I just knew Emily is not going anywhere. She's staying at her master's house. She's with Jesus, and that felt so safe to me. And you know, I was able to share my own things, my own things in ministry, those deaths and all those things. I can talk about them now, but they weigh on your soul. And I went through some hard times for a couple of years, but the Lord saw me out of those things, and that was part of the all going through my ear. So now we're two bond slaves that have become companions and friends, one another, delighting to serve the same master who is so kind. There's no greater calling for a man or woman than to be a bondservant. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We have that on the screen. It's the Apostle Paul. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. I'm honored to be ordained as an assistant pastor I knew about 14 years ago that I was called to be a pastor, long before probably Steve or Scott or anyone else in leadership might have known that. And it happened just an interaction between myself and the Lord in those little quiet raisin bran moments with the Word of God, when I just knew that I was responsible for the sheep. I was one who would be called to give an account to the Lord on their behalf the spiritual conditions of other people's lives became a dominant concern in my heart and mind. It began with the different guys who live with me. Aside from the prison kids I talked about, I've had over 20 different guys in the church over the years who I've lived with. And then the sphere of responsibility got really focused with the prison ministry. And then as guys like Dean were growing up, I come to understand I don't really have the gifts to help him with everything. Like, I can help him with some things. He needs the whole body of Christ to help him. So my, my vision expanded to include the whole church. 
Pastors are integral to the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It's a calling which is associated with a certain gifting, set of giftings given by the Holy Spirit. But most importantly, however, it's a calling that can only be performed by a bond slave. Look at that verse in Romans 1, verse 1. Paul identifies himself as bond slave. And from his position as bond slave, he is then called to be an apostle. You know, there are many other bond slaves in this church, between, beside myself and Emily, and of course, Pastor Steve and Stephanie. Some of the bond slaves in this church don't have the giftings of a pastor, but they have other giftings that are vital to the church. Never be discouraged about what gifts the Holy Spirit has given you. He gifts each according to his own will for the edification of the church. What matters and will always matter is that you're a bond slave. God will hold you accountable for serving in the measure that he's equipped you to serve. He doesn't have favorites. If he's given one more, he will hold them accountable for more. If he gives one less, they'll be accountable for less. But there are also many people in this church who do have pastoral giftings, who have pastoral callings. What's keeping you from functioning and growing in those giftings? The answer really comes down to what I taught today. You haven't yet become bond slaves. There's a part of you still wanting a sliver of control, an option for independence, an escape route if serving God leads you to something you don't like. What did God say, through Saul, say to Saul through Ananias before he was baptized? Very important statement. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. There is an acknowledgement and an acceptance of suffering that you must embrace as a bond slave. We're not called to enjoy it, but we are called to a fellowship in the sufferings. You may begin your walk with Christ hoping for what good thing God will bring in your life. And his benefits are amazing, without a doubt. Looking back, it's one of the things Emily and I, as we just grew to know each other, in spite of the pain, both of us, it was just so clear, we just said it. It's like, in spite of all that stuff that I didn't like happening, I wouldn't undo it if I could go back. Because the way Jesus revealed himself in those moments is so precious to me that I won't. I don't. I, even if I could take it back, I wouldn't. Our greatest example of a bond slave is Jesus himself. I'm just going to finish up by reading to you from Philippians chapter 2. The worship team can come up. Actually, John, if you could put that passage, just for the sake of time, I'm shortening a little bit, but if you put that passage, um, Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8. This is a messianic psalm. 
It's quoted in the book of Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, says, sacrificing offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your laws in my heart. That word, my ears you have opened, the actual word there is the same word translated pierced, may know the Psalm 22, verse 16, the prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion. They pierce my hands and my feet. It's the same Hebrew word. You have pierced my ears. And so the psalmist, knowing the ceremony of making a bond slave, is actually connecting Jesus into this place of being a bond slave. So Philippians chapter 2, it says, Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ. Who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on as a right, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond slave, and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death and the death on the cross. For Jesus to be a bond slave required him to suffer the punishment that I deserve and you deserve for our sins. That's what was required of him in his role as bond slave. And he did it willingly. He did it willingly for us. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. And the prayer partners can come up. We are, <laughs> praise the Lord, Jesus did it for us. Every single person in this room is a slave. You may not think of yourself that way. The word of God says we're all serving something. Paul said you're either serving sin or you're serving God. You're serving your flesh or you're serving righteousness. What are you serving today? Who are you serving? Jesus made it so clear you cannot have two masters. No way. You will love one and hate the other. Who are you serving? Come to him today. I promise you, you will find no other master like Jesus. Father, I just pray. Pray this word over my heart, God. Root out any idol, anything that is getting in the way of you being the only master of my life. Pray that over our church, Lord. Help us, Lord. We live in the land of prosperity with flowing idols like blind children apart from your spirit bringing conviction. So I pray open our eyes that we might repent, that the ministry of the spirit might flow through all of us, bond slaves of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>